So we began a series talking about the transition between the fundamental teachings of the faith and the deeper teachings of the faith. And last week we talked about how to leave that foundational framework in place. And I told you that throughout the sermon series that you might need those points of what the foundational framework are. So basically from Hebrews we got a a list of things that we're kind of leaving in place. I don't want to say leaving behind because we remember from the text we talked about when he talked about leaving things behind, he was talking about leaving the old self and the sins and the things before the foundational framework of Christ behind. But he was not talking about leaving the foundational framework behind. He was talking about leaving it in place. And so we need to remember what those things are. I hope by now you're beginning to memorize them. I did not put the slideshow back up there today that has them, but we are briefly going to go through them again. And so in the foundational teachings about Christ, you can picture for those of you who have maybe been working on memorizing the imagery, you can picture that. There should have been up on the right hand. Now, they don't, they're not in any particular order, but it's easier to memorize in order. So they should have been around the hexagon. Does anybody remember what the first foundational teaching was on the upper right of the hexagon? I do. Very good. Repentance of dead works. That's correct. And so repentance of dead works is the first. Then we're going to work our way around. The second one was 
Faith. Second one was faith. And then baptism. Next. Which remember baptism is actually might have been in the order that we had it might have been laying hands next. But anyway, one of those two was next. Was it baptism next? Baptism and washing, right? Not just baptism, because it's not talking about biblical baptism and by immersion, but necessarily, but it's talking about a cleaning of the outer self, which is meaning a change in appearance, what we look like, right? Our witness, if you will, um, as well. It could be either one of those, either baptism or the washing, because the word could be, but it is not the word literally for baptism. It is not baptismo, okay? Then laying out of hands, if that's the right order. And laying out of hands, talking about fellowship, is actually the laying out of hands. And then there are two left. And one is kind of very, you need the one for the other. Resurrection, right? So there is life after death. There will be life after death. There is another life after death. And then the last one is eternal judgment, okay? And then they all sort of, in the the middle, we have the word Jesus. So they all wrap up into the foundational teachings about Jesus. And I submit to you that, that, that they're not every foundational teaching, but that the author of Hebrews was saying those foundational teachings, we need to leave them in place as we go forward through the transition to look at the deeper teachings of Christ. Okay, so the deeper teachings. And so the deeper teachings should never contradict those things because they are foundational. If they do contradict those things, then you have left behind something that Jesus constructed and you're putting it away. I, I don't need to worry about faith per se. Like, I, you know, for example, it doesn't, re- if someone would say, you don't have to believe in Jesus to be saved. Everybody's going to sa- be saved just because of what Jesus did. That is a universalism or universalist teaching that you don't have to believe in Jesus to be saved, but that is not what the word says. That is not what Jesus himself said. And so you would be leaving behind that foundational teaching to adopt that teaching. You might keep some of the others, but the foundational teachings would be broken. It would be no good. So whenever you encounter a situation in life, whatever doctrine you adapt because you saw God doing something or because you read the scripture somewhere or uh, some short devotional or something or because a brother witnessed you or a sister witnessed you, you always need to make sure that those things are in line with the foundational teachings of Christ or otherwise you've missed the main thing. You've left behind. So you're building the Tower of Pisa rather than building a firm kingdom of God experience in your life, right? Okay, so that all being said then, we, we have not made the transition at the point at which we accept those foundational teachings. We have just learned how to leave the foundational teachings in place. That's what we did last week. We talked about how to leave them in place. And we talked about how easy it is and how dangerous and how slippery a slope it is to then apply one of them as greater than the other or, or to miss some point thereof and, and adapt a lifestyle that is not godly. It is not what Christ would want for us. Okay, so we talked about that last week. Now, today, the message, and if we had that long list up there, the message is entitled High Priest. There's quite a bit of scripture involved, and the scripture will do most of the talking. So even though we're going to read a long passage of scripture today, don't, don't panic. It's not a super, like, hour and a half long sermon or anything, because what, um, as the writer of Hebrews will explain to us, there is one key thing that we need to see out of the whole first section. Okay, and the, and this blessing is a great blessing when the writer of any of the books of the Bible tell you this is the main thing you got to see here. That's great that that happens. It so rarely happens, but it happens here in this passage. All right, so we're gonna go then and read from Hebrews chapter seven. Thank you, Amen. This is God's word, and we can be changed by it today uh, by the God of the Bible. All right. 
So I hope you know, you've got a little bit of background on this. I'll try to fill it in, but I don't want to dwell too long, okay? So Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem. Okay? And so we're going to back up just a second and set the scene. And he says, Men swear by someone greater than themselves. Back, all the way back in verse uh, 16. And then he goes down to, We have this hope and anchor for the soul firm. And secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You could say he is a high priest by the same standards or in the same way that Melchizedek was. Now, you would not say that he gets his power from Melchizedek or that he is the heir to Melchizedek's priesthood. Okay, That's not what it means. It means that he is a priesthood in the same way of the priesthood in the same ways that Melchizedek was, and now he's going to kind of explain what those are. This Melchizedek was the king of Salem and a priest of God. In fact, by the way, he was the first priest of God named in the Bible, speaking in, in all order. He was the progenitor, if you will, of that. He was the first one ever named. It says, he was the priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Okay, So you've got Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And then, because he was the king of Salem, it means king of peace. And so we get an imagery. There was an archetype being presented there in Melchizedek, pointing forward to a king like Jesus who would come, who would be the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and a high priest in, in the order of Melchizedek, in the same way that Melchizedek was. In this story, very briefly, back to, we're going back to um, we're going back to the Lot and uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot is captured by two kings who have their concerted armies come and raid the, Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's Chedorlaomer and Bera, and then. Uh, Abraham hears about it, and even though they've parted their ways and they don't really have any lasting connection, he is still his nephew. And so he gets all his manservants and soldier types together. He doesn't have an army per se, but he gets a few hundred guys together or whatever, and they go out and they save Lot and they defeat the kings. On the way back, he bumps into Melchizedek and he recognizes Melchizedek as a priest and the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. And so right away, he gives him a tenth of everything that he earned in capturing back Lot and everything that he had. Verse 3, this is what Melchizedek was. He was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And so we get some qualifiers about Melchizedek. Now, there is no genealogy of Melchizedek. We don't know who his father was, not in the Bible, or his mother. We have no history of of the man who was the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Now, he did have a father and mother, right? It doesn't mean that he never had a father and mother. God, like, spontaneously created him or something. What it actually means is that we don't need that information, that he stands alone as a priest of the Most High God, and we don't need to go, oh, well, he, you know, he was the descendant of this Levite, which that doesn't even exist yet at this time, right? So he's saying, he is a standalone man of God. He's not a man of God because it was handed down to him by somebody who went before him. He is a 
king of righteousness, a king of peace. It says he is be- without beginning of days. In other words, we don't have record of when he was born or end of life because his story is still being told, right? So there is no beginning and there is no ending in a sense. Now he was a man and so there was a beginning and an ending. This is not a, saying he was mystical in nature, not like Jesus who literally has no beginning or ending, right? He was present with the creation. All things were made through him. Nothing was made except that which was made through him. Right, so he was present at creation, and he'll always, always exist for eternity. So Melchizedek was not an eternal man, right? But he was eternally a, a priest, and the reason he was eternally a priest was because we do, he doesn't tie his priesthood to somebody who came before him and handed it down to him, nor will his story ever stop being told, right? He will always be a priest, as the Bible tells it. So we've got this man a moment in time, if you will, and that moment is like a chirotic moment. It existed because, just simply because it does, and it will always. An event takes place because Abraham sees him as a priest of God and gives him the tenth and recognizes him in that way. He will always be a priest. Finish, uh, starting back at the beginning of three. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So actually, I want you to see there that he's not saying Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek, right? Sometimes in that little top there, it'll say Jesus was a high priest like Melchizedek as a summary of this passage. That is a poor summary of this passage. Actually, what it is saying is that Melchizedek was a priest like Jesus. They are of the same order, of the same type. And, and these are the evidences for that, that he was without father and mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. We recognize him as forever a priest, Melchizedek, of a certain order, of the first order, if you will. Verse 4, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. And so they're looking back in time as they, as they are tracing their lineage back to the, and they say, are you greater than our father Abram who gave us this well? That's actually Jacob, right? But a lot of the wells were given by Abram, the land, and so on. Are you greater than the, the first ever Jew? Are you greater than the first ever one to be recognized as righteous by God? And the argument would be no one's greater, except Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. He recognized that in some way that Melchizedek was greater than him, that he owed him. There was a due, if you will, from Abraham to Melchizedek. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people. So we're now living under this rule, if you will, that the Levites collect the tithe which is they collect it from their brothers. That is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. So the non-Levites, the Judah people, the Benjamites, you know, all the other non, the other tribes of, um, of Israel, they pay their tithes to the Levites because the Levites are the priests of God, owned by God. It goes back to the moment in time. He says, he says, I spared your firstborn sons and now I'll take these ones to serve me. And so he claimed the Levites as his own. And so now they, they collect a tithe from their brothers. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, of course, right? Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And so this priest blesses on behalf of God the one who already has the promises from God, Abraham, 
You follow? So he adds his promise to the promise of God, and you could even say on, on behalf of God, he blesses Abraham. Consider how great he was, this Melchizedek, who was a priest in the order of Jesus. Right? Seven. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. So always the greater person is the one delivering the blessing. Even if they should be hurting, whatever their life situation, whatever, the one who delivers the blessing is always the greater person because they can deliver the blessing. Because they have a right to do so. Because the, the lesser person receives the blessing. So again, he's putting this Melchizedek up over top of Abraham, who was their patriarch. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die. The Levites are collecting it from their brothers. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham's. You might even argue that Levi actually paid the tithe to Melchizedek through Abraham. And here's his logic. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So in other words, all our descendants can in some ways be said to have been part of what we have done. Levite can, somewhat, can be said to have been required. If Levi had lived in the day of Abraham and met Melchizedek, he would have been required to pay a tithe to Melchizedek because he was a priest of a higher order. You follow? And that's the argument that he's making because, Mel, because Levi was still in the bosom, if you will, or still had yet been to be created by Abraham who was submitting himself to, Mel, to Melchizedek. If, so, that priesthood is a higher priesthood. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the law was given to the people, in other words, if the priesthood could have brought about perfection, why was there still need for another priest to come? Which was always prophesied all the way back that there would be another priest coming. One in the order of Melchizedek. They were always promised a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a priest of a higher order was always going to come. And that, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that priest of a higher order was the one who would bring about what they were waiting for. The actual ability to bring people to perfection. Which they knew they didn't have, in part because they were humans and sacrificing for their sin to protect themselves. And again, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But in part also because there was a priest of a higher order already on the books. And they didn't have one. They didn't have a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. They only had priests in the order of Levite. Okay, So they knew there was another priest to come because of that reason. It says, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. So in other words, if there is a higher order of priesthood, there must also be a higher order of the law. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. So in other words, Melchizedek was not a Levite and, he's, he, and no one from whatever tribe that Melchizedek ever came from has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. Now Jesus said, descended from Judah. So he wasn't a Levite. And in regard to the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Judah never was supposed to have priests. There was a couple of kings who tried to take those roles on themselves and they always paid very dearly. In fact, it was when Saul... Really, when Saul tried to take on the duties of priesthood, that was really when God said, I'm through with you. Right? He was impatient, waiting for Samuel to come to bless the army and give the sacrifice before the battle began. And so he did it himself. And then, and then Samuel came and said, you've taken on the order of the priesthood, but you are not a priest like that. 
You are not a king like that. And you even could see, you could hear in the tone of his voice him saying, we are waiting for one someday who may be like that, but you are not that. And because of that, God will now be done with you. Okay? And there were other kings who tried to do that as well, even trying to kill off the priesthood at times and things like that. But never had one come who was of Judah who would be called a high priest yet until Jesus, because he was not a high priest in the order of Levi, but as the argument is being made, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 15 says, And what we said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, in other words, not because, as the law says, he would be a priest because he's a Levite, that's not why he became a priest, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For, and you might say, well, Jesus became a high priest then just because he came back to life, right? But he's, the writer of Hebrews says, for it is declared, the scripture previously tells us, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that's Psalm 110 pointing forward to the Messiah, the anointed ones, telling us that God would make that happen. There would be that way. Now verse 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. So this is the first highlight, if you will, of the new covenant. The old one being set aside because it never made anybody perfect, but a new one, a better hope, is introduced by which we draw near to God. Verse 20, And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. They were Levites, you know, whatever. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Again, pointing to the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee. That's a great word right there. The guarantee, the anchor, the the permanence, if you will, of a better covenant. So with a new priest comes a new covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. In other words, a Levite was always replaced by another Levite because eventually they got old and they died or they were so old they couldn't function. And, and actually, they keep the high priest in office until they are so old they can't function. Um, they were, some of them stayed until their 80s or 90s or whatever. And they were still the high priest and still functioning in that role. But eventually they died and they couldn't continue on in the role as a high priest. But because Jesus lived forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And we know he lives forever because after he died, he was resurrected and seen on earth alive and then seen ascending into heaven. So we know he lives forever. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Not just cleanse for a while like the Levites could do for those who came to the priest and received the proper sacrifices and so on, but he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You are not saved because you once made a profession of faith. That's the problem of the doctrine of once saved, always saved, or perseverance of the saints. And I'm not going to try to step on somebody's toes if you're a Luther fan or whatever, but the bottom line is that we are not saved because we once prayed a prayer or because we once believed. You don't get saved by Jesus because you once believed in Jesus. I, I get it. I understand scripture says you believe, right? Or you, someone say, well, I once believed and called on the name of the Jesus and so I was saved. But that's not why we get saved. That's more how, the method, the steps, if you will. If you truly believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved, right? But you say, well, that's a formulaic. But remember, there's no, it's not formulaic. Or you can't take these steps. Somebody who doesn't believe can't decide to believe. It doesn't work that way. Right? It's not formulaic. You can't just put these things in a pot, stir them up, now I'm saved, and now I can go on and live my life any way I want. We are saved because we have a high priest in the order of Jesus who is continually making intercession for us. That's why when you sin, you can go back and confess to Him and He will cleanse you of all righteousness and the effects thereof. Right? Because He is continually making intercession. That's why we're saved, even though we should have sinned. We continue to be saved because we're trusting in the One who is continually making intercession for us. Which means... And you won't like the sound of this. Most people don't. You can believe you have your salvation and be living for God by your best estimation. And then you can decide not to. You can decide not to believe, not to trust in Jesus, not decide not to live in God in one way or in many ways. And if there isn't after that a moment of repentance, a moment of confession, a moment of contrition, and that's really the right word there, where you again submit your now rebellious heart back to the Lord, you are not saved. Say, but I was saved. You're telling me I can lose my salvation. No, what I'm telling you is that you are saved by the lasting intercession of Jesus Christ, the high priest who never stops ministering before the throne of God. That's how you are saved. And if that's how you became saved, then there never will be a time at which you will actually walk away from your new high priest. That You will say, I don't want to live for God anymore. I don't want what God wants for me. There will never be a time at which you will intentionally take for yourself that which God might give you in a healthy way. And if you have done so, and if you have not then had an act of contrition, if you've not recognized and repenting from dead works, and if you've not returned to your faith, if you have not submitted again to the new life, if you will, that Jesus Christ offers after the washing, after the baptism, if you have not done that, then you probably were never saved in the first place. That is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Those who are legitimately saved will persevere. It does not say they will never sin. But in their sin, they will persevere in trusting in Jesus. You follow the logic? It is a deeper teaching for sure, and we are at the moment of transition as we begin to grasp the fact that a simple Christian, a follower of the Lord, will simply say, if I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, I will be, and Savior, and God raised Him from the dead, I will be saved. And I love it. It's true. It's absolutely true. And it has to remain in the foundational teachings. But when you stop there, you have stopped in the shallow water. Because you got into the shallow water because you were believing in Jesus and His intercession for you. But you're not able to move on into deeper water because you can't accept the fact that He needs to continue to make the intercession for you and know how to access that. Alright. I got off on a little bit of a rail there, but it was the right thing to do. We're going to continue with the scripture. Okay. So then we're going to go, we'll we'll read 25. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Then 26. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy. That means he doesn't have sin, he is right, he is sanctified by God, he is correct in the eyes of the Lord, blameless, 
pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Such a high priest like that, in the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever, eternal from the beginning to the end, without flaw, if you will, he is the high priest that we need. And in trusting in that high priest and, and his continued intercession for us, he becomes exactly what we need. 27. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. See, Jesus doesn't have to intercede before God and ask God to forgive his sins. Jesus has never asked God, never had to ask God to forgive his sins because he didn't have any. The priests would have to first make a sacrifice to cleanse themselves, then a sacrifice to cleanse all the implements of the temple, and then finally, after all, a sacrifice to cleanse the people. Jesus never had to do any of those first things. He didn't have to, make it, have to ask God to forgive him. He sacrificed for their sins. Let's say it again. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. You follow that? We pick Levites because of the rules of law. We pick Levites. Men, they are weak by their very nature. But the oath which came after the law, that's the oath that God made, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever, complete, without flaw, without blame, holy and capable. He is exactly the kind of high priest that we need. All right? Verse, chapter 8, verse 1. And this is where we get that lovely moment. The point of what we are saying is this. In other words, the entirety of chapter 7 could sort of be raised to a pinnacle or the most important thing. It is not the only thing that you could find in chapter 7. We could literally preach through chapter 7 over a year's time and find tons of stuff in there because this is a deeper teaching of Christ that implies and impacts our foundational teaching. Remember we said in our foundational teaching we have to follow them but also be um, informed and, and changed and allow them to be shaped by the deeper teachings but never changed or withdrawn or forgotten. Okay, So we're building on that foundation now. And he says, this, the point of which we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. In other words, he's saying, we've given you now all the evidence and understanding to make a connection from the foundational teachings to understand this Jesus, he is this one. He is the one in the order of Melchizedek, or you could say that Melchizedek was in the order of Jesus in a sense, since Jesus existed a long time before Melchizedek did. But the bottom line is he is that kind of priest, the higher order of high priest, and he doesn't run out. He doesn't fall short. He never gives up. He doesn't, he'll never die. He'll never leave his office. He'll never quit making intercession for you. If you simply have contrition in your heart and allow him to keep making intercession, he'll never stop doing that. The point that we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary. The true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not man. And we're not quite done. Verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, this is important, talking about Jesus, the Messiah. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. If Jesus were still walking the earth, he would not fulfill the requirements of the law to be priest. You follow? 
That's, an, that's a really important teaching for a possible future event, isn't it? Because we've already been told that there will those who come, who come and they will claim to be the Christ. And, they, and people will follow them falsely as their priest, as their leader in the faith. If Jesus was on this earth, he would not be a priest in the order of Levite. He would not take up the temple ministry. He would not become a Jewish leader in the sense that the Levites have. In any case, he is a priest of another order, if you will, that goes far beyond that. This is what he says. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Did you know that? Do you remember that from the Old Testament, that the sanctuary that was built on the earth was a shadow of what was in heaven? This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So Moses was given very specific how to build everything. And the greatest craftsmen in the kingdom of, of Israel were employed to build it, the tabernacle, following the form of what exists in heaven. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator. And there's that second mention of a new covenant. As the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. So in other words, those who were supposedly living in that covenant with God, they had flaws. God found fault with them. And God said this, and this is in prose because it comes out of a poetic Old Testament passage. This time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. In other words, he would make a new covenant replacing that old covenant that he made with them which would be including the Ten Commandments, would be included the promises to Abraham and all of that. He would re replace all that with a new covenant. Not like the one that he made with their forefathers when he took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Why? Because Jesus will be forever at making intercession before him in the throne. Last verse for the day. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete in aging? will soon disappear. Okay, so we're talking about Jesus as our high priest and he gave us the main point that we need to understand in 8.1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest. Such a high priest Jesus is. Such a high priest for every man ever born. For Jews and Gentiles alike. In Jesus is found equality and unity despite individualism and uniqueness. Jesus is such a high priest. If Jesus will be your high priest, it does not matter where you came from. It does not matter your wealth, your social standing. It does not matter the color of your skin or your cultural background. 
If Jesus will be your high priest, and he is such a high priest, then you have a high priest who stands before the throne of God and will not cease making intercession for you as long as you believe and allow him to do so. He is forever priest. He has forever always been the one. When Melchizedek was born and walked the earth and met Abraham and Abraham gave him the tent, that was all an activity designed to show that there was a greater order of high priest yet coming. And they were all expecting it. The Jews were expecting it. And when Jesus comes and they don't get it, I submit to you, there are lots of reasons and maybe each person didn't get it for their own reason. But there were a lot of them that did get it. And the church began. And we see in this new covenant promise at the end of the passage that we read a picture of the kingdom of God present in God's people. A favored people who has such a high priest. He is a forever priest. Always holy, innocent, undefiled. There is nothing wrong with Jesus. Kid yourself not. When Jesus went to the cross and was crucified for sin, in fact, you know, Paul writes it this way, that he became sin for us. He had no sin of his own. He did not die for his own sin. He died crucified between two men who had sin. But he had no sin of his own. He was blameless, without fault. He was not flawed. He was perfect. The perfect sacrifice because he was the perfect high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled. Amen. He's making unending intercession. When I was growing up, there was a, occasionally an imbalance in my household in parenting. For whatever reason, the perception was that my dad loved my brother more and my mom loved me more. If you're a parent in the room, never, ever, ever let that perception develop in your house. That you love one of your kids more. We see the terrible acts that people go to when they think their father loves the other child more. You see it in Cain and Abel. You see it in the story of Joseph. Don't ever let that happen. But it, it, it was a situation that seemed to exist in my house. I even remember one day, one evening at about 6, 7 o'clock, my mom arguing with my dad and telling my dad that she was going to take me and leave him and get a divorce because she was tired of seeing my dad. I'm hearing all of this, mind you, around a corner, through a wall, whatever, but I'm hearing all of this argument. My mom is making this argument with my dad and saying, you love him more than him, you constantly favor him, you give him more, you do more. My brother had some rights probably to receive some of those things because he was four and a half years old and his firstborn son. My mom making intercession for me with my dad was arguing saying, you have to love my younger son the same way you love my older son. She told stories and gave anecdotal evidence as to why she thought that was true. There was a perception in our household that my dad loved my brother more than me. I don't believe it was true now, looking back. I don't think he did, but there was a perception there. When they got done making that argument, in the house that I live in now, I was sitting on the steps and tears were dripping on the second step as I sat on the first. My legs were not very long. My, my upper torso wasn't long enough to drop the tears three steps below. It was right on the next step that the tears were falling. When my dad opened the door behind me after I had heard their argument of 45 minutes, 
and he had promised to make things better. I wondered what would happen next, and I, I wiped my tears away, and I sniffled. I'm sure he knew I was crying. And he sat down on the step next to me, and for about an hour, we took a little plastic cup. It was mustard color. I can see it in my mind's eye. We put it on the floor about three feet out from the bottom of steps, and he pulled pennies out of his pocket. And for about an hour, an hour is a long time in anyone's life. For about an hour, he played with me, sitting on the steps as we tried to toss pennies. We had maybe, I think there were 13 pennies. I'm pretty sure it was 13 pennies. And we tried to toss the pennies in the cup. And he gave me more pennies than he did because he was doing it better. And, and, and every time one of us would get more pennies than the other one in, and we'd have to give up a penny. And for an hour, we played toss the penny in the plastic cup. And at the beginning of the hour, I thought, my dad is just favoring me now. He's just playing with me now because my mom yelled at him because she made intercession for me. And about 15 minutes, a half an hour in, I started to think, I don't really care. I don't care why my dad is playing with me. I, I just enjoy the fact that my dad is playing with me now. Hasn't done that in a long time. He used words of encouragement. He was gentle. He occasionally put his arm around my shoulder and comforted me. And I began to think that maybe it doesn't matter that my mom had to make intercession for me. About a half an hour, 45 minutes in, we were playing for a while. I thought by now we'd surely be done. We talk, he was talking about things as we played, like dreaming about what we might do or what I might do when I get older, things like that. He was spending time with me in a substantial way. And I almost forgot. I almost completely forgot that my mom had made intercession for me before my dad. And I began to think, my dad really does love me. It was all a big misunderstanding. After the hour, when we got up, got up off of the steps, I didn't care at all that I'd heard my parents argue. I didn't care at all that my mom had threatened to divorce my dad. That happened a few times later, and I always interceded. I always said, no, you don't want to do that. I don't, want, I don't ever want to see that happen. And, it was, and the other times that it happened, it had nothing to do with me or favoring me. We did have other issues later on that continued the perception. But on that day, when I got up from the steps after my father spent time with me tossing pennies into a cup and encouraging me, I realized, that's my dad, and he loves me. I belong to Him. Hear me now. In your life, there has been a time, if there hasn't been, there should have been, a time in which you did what you knew you should not do, and you experienced a break in fellowship between you and God. It can be a time after you've been saved. It can be a time before you've been saved. It can be when you were a kid and you stole a penny candy that you weren't supposed to have or you lied and snuck and stayed up late after your parents told you you had to be in bed. Or what, it was a time in your life when you were stricken with conviction. You realized that what you had done was not right. And by virtue of your not doing right, you could not be accepted by a holy, righteous, just God. You had to face the punishment for what you had experienced and you felt the break in fellowship between you and God. And I hope then, the one who loves you and can make intercession for you not once, not an hour on a step, not a few times here or there, but once for always and always for that once, that Jesus came in and you accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior and realized that God raised Him from the dead and that He now stands making intercession for you. And that you got saved. And you now know that God is your loving Father. 
And that even the opposition that you were facing, the wrath, as Ephesians 2 says, we were facing the opposition of God that was against you. Even that opposition was not saying that God didn't love you. It was you that were saying you didn't love God. You were the one that were insulting God. You were attacking God. You were fighting against God's kingdom. And now you realize that whenever you do that, if you still do that and do not honor God, that again, you are fighting against God's kingdom. But you are not subject to eternal wrath because you eternally have Jesus' intercession for you. In this house that belongs to God, God does not like it when you are not good to yourself. God does not like it when you are not good to other people. God does not like it when you are not good to Him. And He will oppose you. There are works that were set aside for you to do. If you are not doing those works, for he who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. God will oppose you. But by a heart of contrition, accepting that Jesus is Lord and realizing that you are not doing what He would have you to do, not being the kind of person that He would have you to be, you can accept again His intercession for you. And that experiment, that essential moment can happen again and again and again as often as it needs to until you yourself stand before God and His throne of judgment. And Jesus stands there, maybe just a little ahead of you, just to the left, and God says, I see your works. And Jesus said, But this one belongs to me. He is exactly the high priest we need who will make intercession for us eternally. And notice that he was put in place by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus possessed the power in Him, of Him, by Him, through Him, in God, of God, by God, through God. Jesus, who was the Son of God, possesses the power of an indestructible life. And the very same power of an indestructible life that raised Jesus from the dead will one day raise us from the dead and makes Him eligible to be our High Priest and intercede for us. Not once, not sometimes, not just when you get certain things right, but always. That's the kind of high priest we have in Jesus. Is a high priest of a higher order. I submit to you at times that a high priest of an order that it is hard for men to understand. I submit to you that you shouldn't even try to understand it unless you have embraced the fundamental teachings of the of the of Jesus Christ of the kingdom that we've been talking about. If you would now ascend to understand what kind of high priest Jesus is and you have not accepted that we must repent of dead works, have faith, be baptized or washed clean, experience the fellowship of other believers through the laying on of hands, be resurrected from the dead and avoid eternal judgment, if you have not accepted those principles, then it's going to be hard. In fact, you can easily abuse it. And that's where people will say, yeah, we have a high priest who intercedes for us forever. Now we can do whatever we want. By the grace of God, I can now do whatever I want and still arrive in heaven because Jesus is such a good guy, He'll take me no matter what. God would never send anyone to hell. He's just waiting for me to curl up on His lap like Santa and wish for an eternity of glory and He's ready to give it. But you must have the channel of faith open. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus and His sacrifice. Faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Faith in Jesus and that God raised Him from the dead in order for the grace of God to flow to you. And if the fundamentals aren't in place, then this deeper teaching will make no sense. So I submit to you today, let's get our stuff in order. Jesus is such a high priest and you want Him. 
to be your high priest. For no other high priest will ever be able to make intercession for you for an eternity. In that, Jesus, this high priest, is a mediator of a better covenant. God finding fault with people essentially annulled or had every right to rather than bestow favor upon them, to judge them alive in this lifetime. And they were cast out of the realm, the kingdom that God gave them, the Holy Land that would be the shining light to everybody in the world so that the Queen Bathsheba come to hear the wisdom of Solomon and the teachings of his God. And God then brought the wrath of other peoples of this world upon them and creation continues to groan and so on because they did not live according to the other covenant in totality. And the truth is, they never could have because the other covenant was designed in its oldness, in its obsoleteness, in its fading awayness. It was designed to point to a new covenant through a new mediator who would be a priest of a higher order, who would be the Messiah who would be the anointed one of all people, who would call both Jew and Gentile to himself, who would be Jesus, a mediator of a better covenant. And then thirdly, and this is where it gets most dangerous of all, it gets most dangerous of all for every one of us, for me too, for all of us, and for all of us who would ever hear this message, I hope you recognize the danger that exists. And that is that there are some who would still try to manage the old way. They would still try to live under the old covenant. And before you say, I would never, I want you to think about whether you have ever said, I'm sure God blessed me that way. I'm sure God sent that blessing into my life because I was found faithful or obedient to do X. God favors His people because He's God. God loves you because He is love. God sends good down on the good and the bad alike. In the kingdom of God, there are many blessings that others will never be able to know. The door is open to those blessings because you are in the kingdom of God. I get that. I understand that. But you mustn't retreat. You mustn't give up the doctrine of repentance of good works. You cannot get to heaven by doing it right. You can only get to heaven by allowing Jesus to eternally intercede for you. First, with repentance from dead works and onward through faith, fellowship with other believers and putting behind the old dead you and living forward, reaching for what God would have for you, living out the teachings of Christ. And when you fail, as John reminds us, confessing your sins and being forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. Now, am I saying that a man needs to go to confession? Am I saying that you need certain works then to prove to God that you have a heart of contrition? No. That isn't so. You didn't need a work when you believed and received Jesus Christ into your heart. You turned from old dead works and sin 
and just said in that moment, now you see, I've had it happen time and time again where people say, well, I repent of sin. And I'll say, well, like, if I, I might think, well, what sins are you repenting of? I don't ask that question because you don't repent of a specific sin when you're getting saved. You repent of all sin. And especially, I would submit to you the sins that you don't know about. So you repent. You're repenting from dead works and works of righteousness that are as filthy rags before the Lord. But there are those who then would in their legalism instill a standard of how a person must live in order to be saved through Jesus Christ. And it just does not exist. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. It says that through Jesus you can have hope. Now I understand that those who claim to, there are those who claim hope, they pretend to have hope, or they even seem to have hope. They make good evidence that they have hope even though they are living like the devil. And we might say, well, I can't determine whether you're saved or not because you say you are, which means I should believe you are, but what I see in your life is clearly fruits of a rotten tree. And so I I can't say you're saved or not. That's not my job. That's God's job. We don't judge lest we should be judged. Because guess what? Anyone who's living a better life than you, who's further along the road than you, might look at you and say, your works of righteousness are not sufficient to be works of repentance. I don't think you're saved. In fact, the lost people of this world look at Christians and they say, the standard that the God of the Bible sets, that holiness, that righteousness, that perfectness that you're supposed to have, you don't measure up. I don't think you're saved. Because I don't think you're saved and you're telling me that the way to get saved is through Jesus. I'm not going to get saved. There are people who would still do it by another way. They would substitute a version of their own holiness for God. For God's holiness for the intercession of Jesus. It will not work. Jesus alone is the blameless, holy, perfect high priest. You cannot make intercession. This is why you cannot decide who you will share the gospel with and who you cannot share the gospel with. When you go to yourself and say, I've tried three times, that person just won't listen to me. I'm not going to bring up Jesus again with them because every time I do, they get madder and madder and madder. That's not up to you. You are a living witness. And the word witness is martyr. And the word martyr means martyr. That's where we get our word martyr from. If they kill you, share Jesus with them so they kill you. That's not up to you. It's up to God. But know at the same time that Jesus is standing in heaven making intercession for you. And if you should die, you will come immediately at the presence of the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord as Jesus is making intercession for you. But if you are refusing to share the gospel with somebody, judging them as somebody who will not hear it, then you have become high priest. You are the one who's deciding who is worthy to be saved and who is not. We are witnesses throughout all the world. If God would say to you, you must go to Uganda and share with some guy in the backwoods and get saved, then you must figure out, you must pit all your resources. You've got to stop paying your bills if that's what it takes and get your money together to buy your ticket and go share Christ with the man in the back of Uganda. And yes, that may mean no more candy bars. It might mean you don't get to eat but a few spoons of rice every day for a few months until you get all the money together necessary to do what God would do. And thankfully, God does not normally do it that way. In fact, that would be abandoning some of the foundations of what we have been taught. And so that's probably not going to happen. But if it did, that would be your requirement. And while we are required to literally put our entire life and all our teachings and everything that comes out of our mouth and all our money and all our time on the line, we are still struggling with whether we're going to serve or give or not. I submit to you, people are drowning in the shallow waters before they get in too deep. Because you're busy worrying about whether or not the next sacrifice you make will be just a little too far, hurt a little too much. 
Well, Jesus is busy making intercession for you before the throne. And somebody's got it right and somebody's got it wrong. You can't do it yourself. Repentance of good works. You believe that Jesus will do it for you. Faith. You're changing your exterior, changing what people see, becoming a light before the nations so that they will glorify your Father in heaven. Will you be perfect in this lifetime? No. Will you continue to make mistakes? Yes. A mistake in ignorance is one thing. But willfully choosing not to do something that you know that God has chosen you to do ought to lead you to wonder whether Jesus is even making intercession for you before the throne or not. How can you be? How could you be that if he indeed is? We have such a high priest as Jesus who is a mediator of a new covenant, but some would still do it another way. Even some who call themselves Christians. They'll gather a huge crowd teaching those basic fundamental teachings. I submit to you that a lot of times when we hear people preach who are preachers and we go, I'm not, that's kind of weird. That's not quite in line with this part of the Bible or that. It seems to be just outside. It's possible they're not saved. We don't know. They may gather crowds of thousands and they may preach that doctrine and people just love it. They eat it up. It's like sugar. It's like honey. Just give me another sugar cube. That's all I need. I want you to tell me how good it's going to be right here on this life. During this lifetime, nothing's going to go wrong. Just tell me how good it's going to be. And they eat it up. But those people that are sitting there listening to those teachers doesn't mean they're not saved. They may be just trapped and they haven't made the transition. They're stuck in the basics. Not willing to accept that we might need to sacrifice the way Jesus sacrificed. In fact, what we read before was that we will be united with Jesus when we are united in His sufferings. And so there is a suffering in this lifetime. But some would still do it another way. That brings us to our conclusion. And then we're done. First of all, it's simple, right? Believe and declare the Lord and Savior whom God raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. That's simple. It's not formulaic because you can't tell somebody to believe and they just do it. Like, oh, I'm going to start believing today. They may need evidences. They, may, they certainly need the leadership of God. No one comes to the Father except to be called. But you can explain that to them so that they have it in their body of knowledge and ask them to believe. And if God has prepared the heart, if they're ready to believe, then they will believe. They will, they will choose to believe. Choose isn't really the right word. But they will begin to believe. And in beginning to believe, the channel will be open. And in, in the channel will be open, they will receive the grace that God delivers through the channel of faith and then hopefully they will take up the foundational teachings of Christ and begin to live for the Lord and at some point make the transition. But this is what I see Christians sometimes do. I'm not willing to share the gospel with anybody. I won't tell people about Jesus and ask them to be saved, but I will tell them that they shouldn't lie. I will tell them that they shouldn't steal. I will tell them that they shouldn't support a certain political figure or that they shouldn't support a certain team or a certain person in the way they act. I would tell them what they should do or what they shouldn't do. That's people trying to do it another way outside Jesus. If you told somebody that they shouldn't lie and they stopped lying, they might even begin to believe that they would never again be a liar 
that they'll never lie again in their life, which, by the way, is a lie. Unless, of course, they've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believe that God has raised them from the dead, and then they will never again be a liar. They may or may not lie again, but they will never again be a liar because Jesus would make intercession for them. And they become like Teflon. And it just doesn't stick. If you told somebody that they shouldn't hate somebody, or that they shouldn't slander, if they're not saved, you tell them that they shouldn't hate, they shouldn't slander, then, but you didn't tell them about Jesus, you didn't bring in the gospel, you didn't ask them to be saved, then you are guilty of the third point of our sermon. You're trying to make somebody better without introducing them to the person that can actually make them better. That can bring them home. This is what that looks like to a degree. So, science buffs in the room. I put water in the bowl, yarn from the top bowl to the bottom bowl, and I put water in the bottom bowl. And I ask you, where's the water? Without looking in the bowl, I'd like you to tell me where in this there's water. You know your science. Is there water in the top bowl still? It's not a complicated question. Sure there is, right? I put quite a bit of water in there, didn't I? Is there water in the bottom bowl? Okay. Is there water in the yarn that's in the top bowl? Is there water in the yarn that's in the bottom bowl? Yeah, those are all easy questions, right? Is there water in the yarn that runs between the two bowls? Ricky Chicken said yes, Aaron says yes. Does anybody know what the scientific principle is that says that the water from the bottom bowl will move up toward the top despite gravity, despite air pressure, despite everything else, that's what it's called? Remember it from science class years ago, many of us, some of us not so long ago? Anybody remember? What's that? I can't hear it. It, it is a principle of fluid dynamics, the laws of fluid dynamics. It's called capillary action. And so if something made of string or individual fibers is placed in water like that is, the water will literally travel up the yarn. So the water has traveled up the yarn during our short time of preaching about this far. See the wet part there, right? So it was above the level that was in the bowl. For all your efforts, you're smart, you're capable, you're created by God, you're created in the image of God to represent Him. Really, that's what He wants you to do every day is represent Him. That's what Adam and Eve were made for. It says they were made as images, it doesn't mean they were made as paintings, or that they that Adam had God's face and Eve had the backside of God's face or something. That's not what it means. It, were, it means they were created in His image. To live for him, to be his idol, to represent him. And that's what God really wants. And because you were created that way, you can reach to heaven. In fact, when God looks at the builders of the Tower of Babel, do you remember what he said? He saw them building in unity. He said, if they have unity, nothing will be too great for them. And so he People are their language and cultural language. He sent them throughout the earth and populated, which is what the original command them to do, but in building the tower, they were not. They were saying, by building this tower to reach to heaven. Your efforts can draw you closer to heaven. It can be more heaven-like. It can be more kingdom-like. Before or after you're saved. People actually do quit taking drugs who, have, who, who didn't get saved. People actually do stop drinking who didn't get saved. Now, sometimes they stay away, sometimes they don't, but sometimes they stay away. They actually better themselves and become more like God. Anytime you're more holy, have less sin, you're more like God, right? It may be in minuscule degrees, but you actually can work your way up 
to be a little bit more Christ-like, to be a little bit more godly. You can dismiss some things. Other things will probably take place. I don't know if net gain will ever be anything, but the bottom line is in certain areas of your life, you can become more like heaven, more like the kingdom of God in heaven. Interestingly enough, the water has been traveling up here, and because we have capillary action, you know it traveled up this far. You think it made it over the edge of the bowl and started down? In the time that we've had together, the water is right here. So it has started down. Now how far, ultimately, do you think that water would get? If I let this sit here long enough, how far do you get? Pretty far. As long as capillary action continues to move the water up here, gravity will help it move down here. Eventually, the entire yarn will get wet. Through capillary action from the bottom and through the water from the top. And especially true because, and we don't really think of it this way, but there's air pressure pushing down on this that's forcing it. And that is essentially what they say capillary action is. The water has the pressure of the atmosphere pushing down on it, and so the water travels up inside where there's less air pressure travels up inside this room. And so they would eventually meet. Except when it comes to faith, you'll never meet. You know why? Because outside Christ, you don't know where you're going. You don't know what heaven's like. You don't have Google Maps that will lead you to get there. But Jesus does. As it said, he was a forerunner for us. And so this is what will happen. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that God raised him as Lord and Savior, if they part for your sins and he's in charge of your life, and that God raised him from the dead, then he will come and he meets with you here and he lives in you here. And when the time comes and throughout your life, your, your journey will be in the direction that he already knows. He already knows how to get where he went. When he just came back from there and took up residence in you. And I know those are difficult terms to use because he is omniscient, omnipresent, and so on. But he's so much more than that. Jesus will not conquer your insides unless you submit to him. But if you submit to him, then he will come. He will suffer with you, he says. He will live with you and you with him. And then when you die, he will take you there to be with him. Now, is there anything that I said today, anything in this deeper teaching that doesn't line up with repentance of dead works, doesn't line up with the faith teaching that we have, that doesn't line up with the teaching on baptism or washing, the teaching on laying up hands, Christian fellowship, the teaching of resurrection from the dead, the teaching of eternal doesn't No, it lines up perfectly. It's just a step further because Jesus is a high priest above all high priests. And then when we take him as our high priest, we become essentially a priest ourselves. But not in the sense that we get to decide who will get saved or who won't or what people should do and what they shouldn't. Our job then is to glorify Jesus. Have you strayed from Jesus? Have you done what you ought not do? If you've willingly done so, then I submit to you, if you've intentionally done so, you need to come back to God with a contrition in your heart or repentance and let him forgive you again as, he makes, as Jesus makes intercession for you again. You've done so out of ignorance. Then I would assume you already have that heart of contrition. You already realize, oh, that was stupid. I shouldn't have dis disobeyed God that way. And then he'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We are not done by any means. 
This is the point of transition. It isn't really even the deeper teachings. It is a slightly deeper teaching that will push you beyond your envelope. But we're not done by any means. If you haven't made the transition, if you're not willing to make the transition because you're dull of hearing or because you're in sin right now, then I submit to you, repent and turn to the Lord and let Him cleanse and heal. If you're there today, there's just one choice. Have Jesus as your high priest. Such a high priest as this. And we will again, and I think it, over next week and the following weeks, we'll talk about this new covenant. Because a covenant is a contract between us and Jesus, between us and God, really, through Jesus. And we need to live it out. It concludes, this concludes our message. But if God is touching your heart right now and you need to repent, then we need to do that. And so as I close this in prayer, I'll give you the opportunity to make a decision today and allow you to pray along with me. And we'll ask God, who's already shown us the high priest who is worthy, who has already shown us a picture of the very image of the one who stands by the throne and makes intercession for us, who actually was the image of the living God. And we'll ask God to forgive us through his son and to lead us forward as we walk with him. Let me pray for you today. So you've been listening to New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church in East Toledo. If you don't have a church home or um, are searching, then we would love to see you in an in-person worship service. Feel free to dial into our stream on facebook.com New Heights Fellowship Toledo. Also, if you'd like to participate with us by volunteering or by giving, you can visit our website churchtoledo.com. We need your help. In this day when it seems we are closer than ever, and that's kind of ironic to say, but of course we're closer than ever, when it seems we are closer than ever to the return of Jesus, we need your help to volunteer to get the word out about the kingdom of God. We also need your financial assistance as we are actively serving in the kingdom advance and every dollar that comes into the ministry is being used to fund ministry throughout the city of Toledo and really now throughout the world. And so if you are interested in donating, donating visit our website at churchtoledo.com. You can also text G-I-V-E, that's the word give, to 419-419-0095, which is our texting phone number. That's 419-419-0095, and you can give that way via your credit card or debit card. You can mail checks to 255 Hefner Street, Toledo, Ohio, 43605. There are other opportunities to serve and to give. Please feel free to peruse our website again at churchtoledo.com. God bless you today, and we'll look forward to speaking with you next time.